Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. back for the review of another Stargate SG-1 episode. Today we're reviewing the 11th episode of the first season of Stargate SG-1 called The Torment of Tantalus. The original air date was October 3rd, 1997. It was written by Robert C. Cooper and directed by Jonathan Glasner, the man who together with Brad Wright brought Stargate SG-1 to our screens. Depending on when you jumped on the Stargate franchise bandwagon, you may or may not recognize one of the characters in today's episode, Paul McGillian, the beloved Scottish-born Canadian actor, a man who, if you even remember, remotely interested in sci-fi will have seen in the past 20 years. When I looked into his resume, he has starred in Star Trek, both a movie and a show. He also starred in Fringe, Once Upon a Time, Flash, The Good Doctor, Sanctuary, Smallville, 24, Supernatural. Such a great actor. And I love the character that he plays in Stargate Atlantis, the Scottish doctor Carson Beck, which is not the same role that he plays in this episode. In this episode, he is the younger version of a character central to this episode. Another familiar face is Elizabeth Hoffman. For a second there, I was like, wait, is she related to Elena Hoffman? But apparently it's Elena Huffman. And they are not, as far as I can tell, related. For those of you not in the know, Elena Huffman, she is also in Stargate Universe. And some of you may also know her from Supernatural, where she plays quite well, I might add. But on. The woman we're talking about here is Elizabeth Hoffman, who we, or I, know from the movie Dante Speak. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, is with Pierce Brosnan and Linda Hamilton, who you might also know from Terminator. Anyway, back to Elizabeth Hoffman. In addition to her role on Dante Speak, some of you might also recognize her from Star Trek The Next Generation, The A-Team. She hasn't been active since Stargate. In today's episode, she plays Catherine Langford, the female character that recruited Daniel to help unlock the Stargate secrets. I was happily surprised to learn that she is still alive at the spectacular age of 96. But enough name-dropping for now, let's start with the episode because there's lots to talk about. For always, the episode starts off with the MGM lion roaring. The opening scene starts us off with some sultry, romantic, jazzy music, and we see that they are manually trying to dial the gate. We quickly learn from the music, the clothing, the camera that's filming this whole shabab. This is not Stargate Command circa 1997. I do not know how they edited this. Of course, I understand that we need a little introduction into this revelation, but it seems that as Daniel and later on O'Neill are watching the events unfold. On one of the videotapes released by the Pentagon, we see the men back in 1945 manually trying to dial the gate. As we are all now shockingly about to discover, they succeeded in initiating a stable wormhole. I have so many questions about this scene. Even though they really do try to make it work, it still does not take away that everything that they told us is apparently bullshit. 
The way that they tell it now is, in 1928, they discovered the Stargate underneath the cover stones in Egypt. Cover stones containing, according to the 1994 movie, six out of the seven glyphs needed to make a successful wormhole connection to Abydos. Somewhere along the way, they started to work with the United States government, most likely during the war, as they hoped the gate was a weapon they could use. We learned that Ernest Littlefield figured out during the 40s that the glyphs on the gate represented destinations, meaning star constellations. And as soon as they'd figured that out, they could quite easily, even dialing manually, make a successful connection to Abydos. Because why would you randomly start dialing glyphs when you already have six served to you on a silver platter? This new intel means I didn't even cover this in my review of the movie, only because now I've figure out how fucking obvious this is, they never needed to try billions of possible permutations to successfully get a connection. They already had those six glyphs handed to them on a silver platter. They just needed to figure out the pesky point of origin to make a connection. They already had those six glyphs to enter in, and out of the 39 glyphs, only 33 now were left on the gate, so you couldn't tell me, even by hand, that they could have gone all the way back in the 40s by manually dialing in those six coordinates and then continue to try the other 33 glyphs until they landed on the point of origin. Fortunately, that would have meant that Ra would have learned of our existence and advancements early on, and we'd most likely now all be enslaved or dead by the 1994 movie. But still, why not dial those coordinates, but instead just randomly start dialing? Also, now what they're trying to peddle to us is that they randomly started locking coordinates, they randomly happened upon that point of origin that would allow the gate to connect, and then they sent someone through and no one took any notes on the order of the glyphs or whatever, because if they did, they wouldn't have needed Daniel because they would have already had him. Which now means that this completely negates, nullifies, cancels Daniel's contribution to the Stargate program. But don't get me wrong, I love Daniel. I'm very glad that he's here, truly. Learning this kind of sort of now glaringly points out that your importance was, shall we say, slightly overestimated, over-exaggerated, completely unnecessary. We love Daniel. I am with the writers here to not look too hard at that, but come on, people. I love that sequence in the movie, you know, with the whole drawing of little fellas next to the pyramid with the sun directly above it on the screen and like the whole ancient Egyptian vibe. I love it. I do. But this episode just blew that whole concept out of the water and just make me realize how fucking stupid it is. Which is a shame because it's a good movie, it was an original idea, and it's a great franchise that I truly love immensely. But yeah, truck, whole, damn, I could not get past that. So I'm sorry if I ruined it for you. Please just see this as a way of enhancing the experience. Like, I love the whole premise of it all. Aliens, technology, wormholes, gay travel. I love it, but this kind of pointed out that it wasn't all that thought out. Don't get me wrong, I love this episode, I love the storyline. As a standalone, I think it works. There are so many funny moments in it, meaningful, heart-wrenching moments. Therefore, I would still rate this. It's one of the better first season episodes. But yeah, I, I just cannot get past that part, that it completely negated Daniel's importance, that they were apparently able to figure it out. In the 40s, they never tried again, they just completely covered it up to the point that it was erased from history, and I know we're very good at whitewashing, but the military personnel in involved in this, especially during the war, like the president, Roosevelt himself was involved in this. What they were doing there was known. So the fact that they succeeded, they sent someone through, and then to just completely erase, not just
just the fact that they sent an American through, so much for don't leave man behind, but also that they apparently lost any and all information about the attempts made, figured out that it was star constellations, they figured out the point of origin, that they actually succeeded in making a successful wormhole connection, which, again, no offense, would have meant that they would not have needed Daniel to part of this revelation. That's to be said. At least once. That's what this review is about, right? Poking holes, but also celebrating the magic that is Stargate. And again, this episode does allow for both. Like, I am poking a giant hole that you can drive a truck through in this episode, but still, the bones are good. The theme of the episode is beautiful. The acting is great. It gives the viewer a lot of food for thought, which I always love. When a show can both move you and also give you something to think about. But it doesn't take away that, like, if you stare at it too long, it can't miss that glaring truck-sized plot hole. Also, they try to reason away why Catherine didn't know this. And the part that shits me, no matter how dysfunctional our governments are, you think they would remember? They achieved a successful wormhole connection. They actually even sent someone through. Someone somewhere would have written that down. Or at the very least, it would have made some interesting scuttlebutt. But that apparently when in the 1994 movie, General West and all the other military personnel seemed to be completely oblivious to these sequence of events in the 40s no matter how they try to reason it in the episode i'm sorry i'm not buying it how about y'all In addition to this plot hole of all plot holes, we also get a little sneak peek, it kind of feels, about day-to-day life Stargate Command's personnel. Not to mention a lovely anecdote from Colonel O'Neill about how he really feels about the Pentagon. As a military officer, that is an interesting take, I suppose. Makes you wonder. Like, you vow your life loyalty to a government that you have some serious misgivings about. I do have to say, that is one of the main reasons why I love Colonel O'Neill. Yes, he's a military officer, but he will stand up for what he believes in. And he's even funny while he does it. And as I have learned, apparently it is actually quite an accurate portrayal. Who'd have thunk? Military personnel do seem to enjoy Stargate as well, and as consultants or just fans, they have been in contact with the people that created and work on the show, worked on the show, past tense. And we will be seeing at least one of them, maybe more, but I know that there's at least one cameo. Well, apparently he told Richard Dean Anderson when he apologized, basically, for being such a sassy, disrespectful military personnel officer on the show. That general or colonel, I don't remember exactly, told him that it was an accurate portrayal and he actually thought that in some cases it was light. So on the one hand, I was like, damn! That just gave me a whole new level of respect for American military personnel. On the other hand, I was like, oh, is that a good thing? I don't know. Isn't the whole shtick that they need to be honorable, respectful to their superiors and higher-ups and the hierarchy of it all for the system to work in the first place? Plus, if you're not, you will not get promoted and you could even face disciplinary action or in worst cases, a dishonorable discharge. But there is still room for sassiness. One's own morality, humanity, I was actually quite happy to learn. I'm currently watching SEAL Team. I like it. I have some serious notes concerning the alcohol usage in this TV show, but I really love how they show respect for the troops and how they highlight how bad our treatment of veterans is. 
For those of us who possibly maybe are not yet in the know or haven't followed Jon Stewart's great heart, fortunately, marginally, successful work until now. Although I did hear that they finally had a conviction concerning the burn pits, so I was very happy to hear that. I really love that on SEAL Team, they don't just pay attention to the physical aspect of what serving your country can get you, but also the mental component was beautifully portrayed in the storyline of Brett Swan, or Swanee as they so lovingly called him. That whole storyline really was quite moving, I found. Why I love when TV shows make you think. So again, yes, I have some serious notes on alcohol use, and if you ask me, abuse on the TV show, but that underlying message is beautiful and can never be highlighted enough, so yes, I do recommend you watch this show. When it comes to the troops, I cannot be anything other than honored and impressed and moved by the sacrifice, inspired by the commitment to the cause, and above all, the brother and sisterhood that gets fostered. That deep sense of belonging and connection is something so beautiful we should all be lucky enough to find at some point in our lives. It would be nice to have more places of employment where brotherhood, sisterhood is fostered and that it really truly feels like a family. One of the reasons why I love the TV show Supernatural so much is because the cast and crew really truly appear to be a family that looks out for each other, that cares for each other, that supports each other. And I think that brotherhood Brotherhood also comes across, especially throughout the seasons, between our Stargate characters. This show, I always thought it, it it was entertainment value for Richard Dean Anderson's character to be this sassy and, and that the banter between the actors and the characters just made the show work because it really does. But that it was fiction, that such a thing just could not happen in reality, which was a shame. And I always hope with TV shows and, and movies, inspire us to try and make the good of what we're seeing in that fiction world a reality. So I love to hear it when it actually happens in reality, as far as we are aware, you know, it's still only observed from the outside, but one can only hope. I mean, you can only fake it for so long. One would assume. Enough of that for now, let's get back to the episode. We see Elizabeth arriving home, learning that someone is in her home. Why they decided to write this scene this way, please explain it to me. But sure, whatever. She is very happy to see him, and what we can derive from her response to Daniel is that even though Colonel O'Neill did not tell the truth about the situation and the happenings on Abydos and Daniel's fate, any military peeps, in returning the necklace that Catherine gifted to Daniel in the movie Stargate, and that Daniel returned through Colonel O'Neill at the end of the movie, she received because she's clearly seen wearing it, and she discloses that Colonel O'Neill did tell her that he chose to stay on Abydos, so apparently she did know that Daniel didn't die? Okay. They all can keep a secret, I guess. I think that only adds insult to injury when she learns that not only is Daniel back from Abydos, and apparently she has no fucking clue about what's happened in the last six months, that they started the Stargate Command program back up again, all the things that they've learned since then. Clearly, they never updated her. Daniel does show some of his own annoyance in saying, well, you could have told me about the experiments they did in 1945, clearly showing that there were still some secrets to be had in this relationship. And of course, with the era, end of World War II, Catherine divulges that, of course, the American military saw little to no use for a 21-year-old woman. Now, through a flashback, you do learn that she wasn't involved, because when we see a young Catherine and the man we learn worked with her father on the Gate Project, Ernest Littlefield, talking about all 
alternating or direct current. But somehow they failed to mention to her that they figured it out, that they decided to send someone through, and okay, maybe I get that they didn't want to share that it was Ernest that volunteered, and they tried to protect her from that choice, but that all the time that this happened, and this must have happened at least over, I'm assuming, and okay, granted, I know what happens when you assume, but you know, mm. that this happened over the course of a few days. You can tell me. They immediately dressed up Ernest in a scuba diving suit, because when the event horizon connects, it looks like water, so they just happened to have one lying around, and all that happened in, like, what, an hour, so they didn't get the time to decided to tell Catherine, oh yeah, BT dubs. One, your idea was correct. It did allow us to make a successful connection. Oh yeah, and by the way, we sent someone through. Am I wrong to assume that it kind of would have happened the same way that it did in the movie? Or did I interpret that one incorrectly as well? I'm assuming they finally got a connection, they assembled and outfitted a team, Daniel needed to get a suitcase filled with books to figure out how to get home, but that took time. At least that is how I interpreted all of that. How about y'all? Is it because I know that there is a finite amount of time that a wormhole can stay open that I am not accepting this reasoning? But yes, you would be correct that that nugget of knowledge has of yet not been shared. That is something that they come up with later. So maybe I shouldn't fault them too much. But yeah, without the scuba suit, I think I would have bought it a little more easily than I do now. Like, okay, it's exciting. What is it? What can it do? Let's try and walk through it. But because they had the time to get a wormhole connection, understand that it looks like a pool of water, dance someone in a scuba suit. To me, due to editing, I can understand why it looks like Daniel and O'Neill are watching this in real time, but I kind of just thought that it was just a lot of editing stuck onto one videotape, and it didn't happen in an hour. It took maybe days. But that's me probably overthinking it again. But once I started to think it, I couldn't stop. How about y'all? Did I ruin it? to top it off why she wouldn't know what happened to him introduced to us the narrative of her father telling her that Ernest her fiance died in an explosion clearly not telling her the truth and some would say he was trying to protect her even Catherine herself chooses to immediately come to her father's defense that he tried to protect her from Ernest choosing his work over her again you need to be aware of the era but for real people like I get it I just don't agree with it because one it's a lie I don't like lying that's never a good thing but even though they assumed that he was dead, you can't tell me that they never again tried to dial the gate or tried to contact him in any way. Just the fact that they apparently gave up after just trying once and presumably failing. You could say it was the end of the war, they got other things to focus on, but still. They just apparently covered it up, lied to anyone and everyone connected or aware of what they were doing, and it just I find that very hard to believe. Like I said, I'm not buying it. I like it when Daniel pulls out another file and he says, I actually wasn't supposed to show you any of this. So you clearly know that Daniel is breaking protocol and might actually get in a little bit of trouble. But morally, I back him 100% because this lady, her father found the gate, they worked on it, she somehow found a way again to get the military interested to again try and see if the gate would be activated. Not to mention the guy that stepped through was apparently her fiance and I don't know, maybe she would like to know what happened to him. So it's, in my eyes, very logical that he went to her with all this information because this was a very integral, more than he probably even imagined, part of her history. Unfortunately, yes, he is basically telling her, like, BT Dubs, your entire life was built on a lie, but you're welcome. 
So there's another thing. In the movie, I praised that Catherine stuck to her guns and did not let the military bully her. What I really miss in this episode? Like, what happened there in that relationship? How did she become reduced to a mere civilian status that doesn't even get updates? You did see her house, so maybe what, they bought her off? But considering that her father was a Lord Carnarvon type of fellow, I don't know what that is, that's the dude that uncovered King Tut's tomb. Mm. Fun fact, the house in Downton Abbey is Lord Carnarvon's house. When I learned that, you know me, and in all things related to Egypt, ancient Egypt in particular, it makes me tingle. Well, yeah, considering that her father was an Egyptologist's cash cow, after King Tut's tomb was discovered, Egypt was hot, hot, hot. So my guess is they weren't poor to begin with. So it's possible, but still, I would have liked them to at least paint a better picture about what happened there. Like, I like the fact that they brought it back, and I like the fact that they showed us a little what happened between 1928 and 1997, because that is a large gaping hole that you can sail the Titanic through. But yeah, that was something else that made me think, huh, what happened there? Spaniel for always being the keen-eyed observer, he figures out which planet Ernest eventually went to. And as he shares with Catherine, they could go there to see what happened to him, if, if he maybe is still alive, or, I mean, at the very least to bring him back home. Understandably, General Hammond is quite angry with Daniel for breaking protocol and sharing information about the Stargate program with a civilian, but again, how she became reduced to a civilian after everything? She knew about the gate before y'all did. She owned it at some point, and you lent it, borrowed it, rented it, whatever. Just weird. You really like it that, quite respectively, O'Neill's the one to remind General Hammond of that. She introduced the gate to them. She brought it to them. Everything they knew or learned about it was through and because of her. So I do like it that they made him say it because, yeah. And then, of course, Daniel tells them why he brought her. He wants to go to the planet. And I love that little moment of banter between O'Neill and Daniel. Where, again, you feel that they're already close. That the relationship is there. When he tells Daniel, you gotta go that one step further, don't you? And though, yes, you kind of share and understand O'Neill's annoyance, it's also the reason why we love Daniel. Because, yes, he will always go that one step further. Like, like these kinds of little performances really makes you feel like the character is have a bond, have a relationship, know each other, and just, this is only the 11th episode of a completely new television series, and the relationships are already there. You, that, as a viewer, makes it so easy to step into this world, and now, especially now that you can binge, you can really step into that alternate universe, and that is what I love about the magic of entertainment, that they can really transport you to an alternate universe, even if it's just for a little while. Next, we see that apparently Catherine and Carter are also quite well acquainted. Apparently, Carter was connected to the gate even well before Daniel, even though she was nowhere to be seen in the movie. But Carter comes up with another important nugget of information. The address to this planet is not on the star map that they found in Abydos, meaning that most likely the Go'uld don't know of this planet. Daniel immediately concludes also that this is proof that the Go'ulds did not build the Stargate system. I guess. Like, nitpicky me would say it just meant that it wasn't part of Ra's domain. But then again, Carter did say that the only reason that they were able to connect in 1945 was because it was relatively close to Abydos. So that would make it more likely that if Ra owned Abydos and Earth, he would also have owned this planet. So, so all right, Daniel, you have me convinced. 
Or maybe perhaps I just accept this automatically as gospel because I know. Spoiler! Yeah, the Go'uls were not the gatefielder. Who are, though? Nugget of information that's revealed later on in the show. Promise you it is worth the wait, so stay tuned. Still, the question remains, especially considering what they said in the 1994 movie, where they claimed to have tried a gazillion permutations, even with the coordinates in a specific order on the cartouche to start them off with, and the fact that in 1945 they were able to connect with this planet, which apparently, out of those gazillion, billion, trillion, they didn't just happen upon, as they did in 1945, just truck, hole. Have I made my point? Is it getting annoying yet? Sorry. Not all that sorry. Little sorry. I don't want to ruin it, but that is the thing that the more you start thinking about it, as I said, it don't sit well with me, but that's just me cracking down on the science and the continuity. No, that doesn't take away it's a great episode. I mean, the storyline was maybe a little less well thought out. I still find this a very good episode because the underlying theme with the title, The Greek Tragedy, that it is beautifully embodies the struggle that the characters, both in the past and the present, are struggling with. So I may be a little nitpicky about this part, but overall, I still find this a very good episode. They did a wonderful job of highlighting just all of it. Where do y'all land? Like, am I alone in this? Did I ruin the experience? Or do y'all share my opinion? Or do you have a completely different opinion? Please do share. All of this arguing and reasoning for why they should be able to go to the planet. I like that they make General Hammond clarify it was Daniel's first argument that there is an American out there, fate unknown, is reason enough for him to grant permission to go. I love that that again shows his humanity. Those little things add up to make him such a great honorable leader in my eyes. Interestingly enough, Catherine is allowed to come with. I like that. I would have liked to have been in the room when they had that discussion, but no, just let's roll with it. Because this now made me realize that like, she was a little girl when the gate was found. Her entire life, she'd known about the gate. Probably, at least since the 40s, realized that it was a, a gate to the stars, whatever. She never actually got to go through it. So even though her entire life she knew about the gate, she undoubtedly had thoughts about what it could be, what it could do. This is her first trip through the gate. And it would then make sense that considering that she didn't go with them to Abydos, in her mind the first time the gate actually connected, because they reported back that Abydos was destroyed, and thus the gate too. Whatever O'Neill told Catherine Abydos survived. Oh, how bittersweet that must have been for her. She then could not ask them like, oh BT Dubs, can I go to a planet that is supposedly destroyed? Because definitely I would have done that. Although plumbing, still issue. Abydos does not have plumbing. But then again with Catherine and Daniel, they could have introduced the Abedonians to all that magic. I mean, just saying, I would. If I was her, I would have. Fuck yeah. Then again, I'm also the person that would basically by now pay E.T. to please take me home because this ain't it. Not for very much longer anyway, considering the whole global warming drama catastrophe that we're steamrolling ahead straight into. Let's mention all the greedy people keep winning. Also very annoying. That is why we love sci-fi. It allows us to dream, to hope, to pray, to alien gods to come please save us or like take us with you, something or other. Me, I'm down with both. As they all arrive on the other side, in comes a naked Bella. And just through this entire scene, I love Carter. I do. Despite the whole, it's a little funny that he's naked. I mean, when you're alone, why not walk around naked? 
it's also a moving scene. Just imagine that you were left for 50 fucking years. Like, damn. Seeing him realize that they are actually there. For me, this scene, again, beautifully embodies the magic of Stargate. Because you realize this man left 50 years ago and really was left out there. And you see humans again. First time in God only knows how long. You can get a little choked up. Anyone has seen Castaway? Yeah, that's a toughie. We are social beings. But then to also still make it funny. Like, did, is that the reason why they wrote him naked? That does alleviate this entire scene. At least for me, it does. I mean, it, it still makes me laugh, even just remembering it. Also, the reunion of the long-lost love. Not exactly as I had expected. Which, again, is what I love about this show. It keeps you on your toes. Daniel learns that, indeed, Ernest has been alone for 50 years. And considering that he left around the time of World War II, maybe coming to a close. Like, did he even know what happened? Maybe he thought that, I don't know, we, we started throwing nukes and everyone died? That's not a happy thought, I'd imagine. Being alone on a planet for 50 years, not knowing what happened back on Earth. And just like in Castaway, we learned that for... Ernest to survive this isolation, he thought up his own Wilson, or in his case, Catherine. I do like, again, how they answered a viewer's question, either directly or indirectly, and this time in relation to the dial home device, when they arrived on the planet, you could have thought, why in 50 odd years did Ernest never figure out how to dial the gate back home? I mean, the iris has been installed since 1997, so he still had 50 years to come back without any impediment. So why didn't he? The broken DHD answers that question, and also it adds a little excitement to the episodes. So again, well-written, kudos to the writers, and even sneaking in that little line of O'Neill saying, I thought the map was supposed to detect something like this, showing us a little insight in the protocol that they are establishing the more they gate travel. It is imperative that when they send the map, there needs to be oxygen, of course, but also a dial home device so that they can come back. So this gives us a little insight into up until now, they were just going with visual confirmation, but I can imagine after this little wrinkle, they will now get a little more up close verification that DHD is working, but it's like all these little small things in an episode that really helped build the whole Stargate Command program and thus the franchise. When Ernest shows them his library, we see four languages, presumably, light up on the wall, signifying that this was a meeting place of different races or species, but also the holographic representation is beautifully done, especially for that day and age. I remember back in the 90s when I first saw this, I was mesmerized. Kinda like our Daniel. What I really love about this device is where Daniel gets so excited, and I share his excitement, that is a meeting place, a sort of alien United Nations, coming together, working together, which in and of itself is mind-blowing, that there are not only alien races out there, but also advanced enough to work together. And he figures out that representing the basic elements, as this device does, the building blocks of the universe, it represents a true universal language. As Daniel so beautifully explains, a means of universal communication is to reduce the method of communication to the most basic elements common to everyone and everything in the known universe. And I remember the first time I saw this episode, that made me really excited. And I found it highly plausible that this could actually happen. That alien races, advanced enough, travel the universe, meet up, hang out, but of course, probably, communicate in entirely different ways and need to find a way to come together. A lot of the languages on Earth have 
have ties due to people moving around. But what is truly universal in our communication is our facial features. And there are differences between races and you are more likely to identify emotions in your own race than you are in people of different races. That has been proven. But imagine that you have a completely different species that you're dealing with. How do you communicate? Like effectively, you need to start somewhere. And currently with interspecies communication, we have learned some sign language to monkeys. And that's still very rudimentary. Other than that, to have meaningful conversations, yeah, you need to find some commonality. Therefore, I found this explanation, this reasoning, this beautifully presented, well thought out, and thus plausible. So <laughs> despite there being a truck-sized hole in the plot concerning the storyline, as we were told up until now about the discovery and our knowledge of the Stargate, this they thought out beautifully. And therefore, it's still one of the better episodes, in my opinion, of the first season. Where do you land on this? Did I ruin it with my truck-sized hole of all holes? Or does this, in your eyes as well, redeem this episode? Please do share. What does kind of surprise me in all of this is that Daniel never directly asks Ernest to give him the highlights of his research for the last 50 years. It's again like Daniel is the first one to discover this. He starts studying the device, he starts looking through Ernest's notes, but like, come on, Baba, Cliff Notes version. I guess it's because Daniel is also the perspective of the viewer. We're learning as he is learning, but now watching it again, I was like, dude, asking for the Cliff Notes version. Like, did they come to any sort of agreement? What are their names? Like, substantial, crucial, important information for us to know. But then again, Ernest doesn't even know what happened in the Second World War. To left, we added, apparently, 21 new elements to the periodic table. And according to what Ernest learned, there are still more for us to discover, it seems. But they don't really delve into that, so personally, that would have been my take had I been Daniel. But then again, they already had to think of so many things in this episode. Not lose the fewer, all this truth bombing. But yeah, when I was watching it now, that kept popping up. Ask those questions. Such a shame. I really would have liked to delve into it a little more. But that's, again, my enthusiasm in this whole storyline. And I do also really always love how O'Neill is strong, knowledgeable, moral leader. But also, is he keeps it real. When Daniel asks, do you know what this means? And he says, actually, it takes a great leader to admit that he doesn't know everything. Both Ernest and Daniel recognize Othala, the rune on the wall. Apparently Ernest recognized it from the Viking. But Daniel now links it to the Asgard and links it to Thor. And that's a little newsflash to Ernest that Thor apparently was an alien. Oh honey, you've missed so much. In the beginning of reviewing this TV show, I said, I didn't really remember Fred. And maybe now I know why. <laughs> because at some point they're harvesting Fred for parts. Maybe that was the end of Fred. Bye, Fred. Otilk hasn't had much presence or lines in this episode, apart from that little cute moment with Catherine. Like their situation becomes more dire by the minute. Neil tries to work the problem, as his training taught him, I suppose. And that brings out Sassy Tilk. Just with that line, that delivery, so much sass. I love it. So losing the DHD to the ocean and the harvesting of the library with the staff weapon, always a staff weapon, turns out to be a bust. They needs to get creative. And this is where O'Neill always shines. Pretends to be, I think, dumber than he actually is when he proposes maybe we could try that Ben Franklin thing. Because yes, the gate is a superconductor. Though they needed a power source, and yes, this storm is very convenient, and yes, a lightning bolt holds a shit ton of power. And I do really like that they bring back the scuba helmet. And yes, the gate is 
is a superconductor. There are so many variables here. Like, is it enough power? Is it maybe too much power? Will it blow up the gate? Like, what? And here comes a beautiful moment concerning the title and how it relates to the episode. The Torment of Tantalus. Everlasting, unending temptation. And what I really love about this, if a lot is going on in this episode, that they took the time to take this Greek tragedy and what you can learn from it. Catherine's perspective, the Torment of Tantalus is what makes a man great, because if we all accepted what was in our grasp, we wouldn't grow, evolve, which I agree. That we always strive for bigger, better, not taking shit at face value but wanting to experiment explore i think that is one of our greatest strengths as a species but as ernest points out sometimes what we already have is of more value and it takes a great man to realize that and that too yes i agree because when you're always chasing after a dream or a fantasy always look at what you don't have it can be a very unhappy life because then what you have is never good enough so you will always be unhappy so i really love that just in this moment where a lot of stuff is happening they still took the time to highlight both those very important perspectives but also that this is a view into the mindset. Catherine did not forgive him as she said earlier in the episode for choosing his job over her but in taking this stance it shows that she does understand where he's coming from on some level. I mean he left her and that's of course shitty but it does show that she understands where his mind was at the time and the understanding leads to forgiveness and him now taking this stand basically telling her that I felt that once but having made that choice and ending up 50 years separated from the woman I love, it wasn't worth it. I was a fool, I should have stayed. So in that, it also kind of solves their relationship problems. So that was wonderfully done, which again kudos to the writers. It just, it's meaningful and it shows both perspectives. It also serves the storyline. So I really love this little moment between them. It comes beautifully full circle when Daniel is now facing the same struggles that Ernest faced 50 plus years ago, showing that even though you could possess all the knowledge in the universe, that means nothing if you don't have someone to share it with. So that messaging I, again, really love about this show. It's entertainment, it's funny, it's educational, it's moving, and just great writing, great acting, great editing, just all of it. Great! Plus, he makes a good argument. Like, the knowledge is out there. The aliens are out there. We already met four. So, who knows? Maybe we'll meet the others as well and you can ask them. And again, it's O'Neill that adds a moment of levity to this giant disappointment of not being able to access the information on the planet, the possible meaning of life stuff. So again, all in all, it's a really good episode, even though I, I have questions about the chronological, technical aspects of the episode. But I love how they made it relevant with the characters, and even though Carter and particularly Toke had very little to add in lines and presence in this episode, they still had very funny, memorable moments. Luckily, the next episode is very Tilk-centered, and we learn quite a bit about Tilk's life prior to Stargate Command. We meet other actors who are great additions to the Stargate franchise. It's a great episode, again, great writing, great storytelling, and again, we learn more about the Stargate universe. Just, again, great, great performances from all the actors involved. So, I do hope to see you there!